I want to start with a question. Have you ever made an appointment with somebody that stood you up? I didn't say date, so all you folks that are dating, you're like, yeah, heck yeah. I'm talking about an appointment. Either you're going to meet somebody for coffee or lunch or dinner, breakfast. Uh, Lucas knows what that's about. I stood him up a few weeks ago. Supposed to meet him at 7, and I rolled over at 6.48 a.m. And when you live in Helen, you can't roll over at 6.48 a.m. when you're supposed to meet somebody at 7. Um, but that was an accident. Sometimes people just decide they've got something better to do. Has somebody who uh, works at a therapy office, Janetta, we have people who don't show up all the time, don't we? It's frustrating. You've got a 45-minute section marked off for somebody and they just decide hey I got something better to do or I don't feel like going today or whatever well that throws a monkey wrench in my whole day as as somebody who's made that appointment with somebody is frustrating and then when you do get a hold of them and they say ah I just didn't feel like coming or oh you know I forgot you're like for real you forgot or the oh well something popped up and I just had something better to do Thank you very much for relegating me to not better. I appreciate that very much. It's it's either personally or professionally, if you've got an appointment with somebody, church, keep it. That's not really what this is about today, but for goodness sake, keep your appointments. Unless something comes up that you can't help, and then let somebody know. That's the right thing to do, right? Okay? Well, today, we're going to see... In a story that Jesus tells, people canceling appointments, people not keeping their commitments, and God's response to that. And let me just say, we have made him too small in our eyes as far as keeping our commitments and his commandments, which he's called us to do. If you would, please stand. We're going to read Matthew chapter 22. Wow, we're in Matthew 22. It just keeps bearing down on me. We're going to read verses 1 through 14 today, and we stand because this is the Word of God, and that's worth standing for. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore... To the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Let's pray. Father, this is a monumental task to tackle this passage. And I pray that we as a church would engage through the power of your spirit with your word. God, that we would hear what you are saying, know what you are saying, 
and go out and do what you're telling us to do. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So just right up front, this isn't an easy passage. And I don't mean that it's hard to interpret because it's not. But this is not an easy passage. This is heavy. This is, um, hence the songs we're singing this morning. Uh, Lord have mercy, I've made an altar of the things of man, be magnified, I've made you too small in my eyes. I've been very convicted this week as I've looked at this, by the last two weeks really, because I've, I've had two weeks study it. Thanks Bob for speaking last week, it's a good, good word, and, uh, good for us to get away, and, um, and good for us to be back here and to get into this word today. So, we start here in, um, what happened here? Why do I have first? I shouldn't have first kings. I didn't change one. Okay. We're going to start in 22.1, which is the first verse. So that makes sense, right? And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, let's stop there. So the and at the beginning of our passage today indicates a continuance of where we had come from previously at the end of chapter 21, which was Jesus addressing the crowds in the temple here in this last week of his life. And particularly, he was laying down some serious stuff about the scribes, the chief priests, and the Pharisees who had come to question where Jesus had gotten his authority to come in and run folks out of the temple when he threw the tables over and and ran the money changers out and all that stuff. They came to question, where did you get this authority? How can you run people out of this temple just yesterday and then just come back in here and teach and act like nothing's going on? Well, Jesus wasn't having any of their shenanigans. And basically, he has said up to this point through chapter 21 that they will watch, these religious elite will watch as the tax collectors and the prostitutes get into the kingdom of God while they, the religious Jews, do not get into the kingdom. So then... That in mind, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying. Now, I take that to refer, the them there, I take that to refer to everyone who was around at that time. Okay, he's speaking to them, including the religious leaders, the crowds, Jesus' disciples, all of them. And he's speaking in parables, but it seems to me that these parables that we're looking at through chapter 21 and into chapter 22... These parables that Jesus is teaching right now, these are are, are much easier to understand than the ones that he had uh, spoken previously. And if you'll remember back in Matthew 13, he said that he was speaking in parables to hide truth from some and to reveal it to others. So those are a little bit trickier. Here, I think these are pretty straightforward. I think they're pretty clear cut, very easy to figure out who's who and what moving pieces are what. Um... But he is teaching in parables, just like he had previously. And um, already, through chapter 21, the Pharisees and their buddies have figured out that Jesus is talking about them in these parables. Pointing them out, and they don't like it. And that will continue as we look at this parable today, which again is not really hard, not too hard to piece together. So let's go into Matthew 22, verses 2 and 3. So he's speaking of parables and Jesus starts this way. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son 
and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. As has been so often the case, Jesus frames his parable with that opening phrase of, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Um, Jesus' purpose in telling parables more often than not has been to lay something alongside of, which is the very meaning of the word parable, lay something alongside of the kingdom of heaven to help describe that kingdom or to show what it looks like or how it functions. And we've defined the kingdom of heaven, and this is important, as the realm in which God reigns, including His people, who are in an already but not yet state. They're being ruled over by God, the world, the universe, everything. And they're going to have an ultimate fulfillment of this kingdom sometime in the future. God is sovereign over everything all the time. But this kingdom of heaven has a feel of a king who has gone away and is coming back sometime in the future. Which is what we saw in chapter 21. And when he comes back, all will be visibly and finally subjected to him. But that's not yet. And that's what these parables keep showing. And this kingdom was clearly shown as a place where God allows His people to coexist alongside others who are rebels in that kingdom. Even saying that those rebels are the result of the work of God's enemy whom we know to be Satan. So with that in mind, in our parable today, the kingdom of heaven is like what? A king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, in an effort to identify who's who and what's what as we go along... Who would you guess this king and his son represent? Again, not hard. The king is God the Father, and his son is Jesus, God the Son. Okay? Just very straightforward, very easy. This is not hard. Now, historically, at this time, wedding feasts, even for commoners, even for peasants... Wedding feasts were really big events. When a family was planning a wedding, it usually consisted of several days of feasts. So it's not just a feast. You could call it a feast over a period of time with many feasts in the middle of it. And actually throughout the parable, the word feast uh, goes back and forth between singular and plural if you get into it. But So it's a long deal. It's several days, even for common folks. So... The family that was uh, usually the, the, the parents of the, of the groom made arrangements for the wedding feast. They invited everybody that they could, and they provided food. They provided shelter for all the guests that they could possibly invite. When we see a glimpse of that in John, when, when Jesus is at the wedding in Cana of Galilee, and they run out of wine. That was a big deal because it would have embarrassed the, the host family. They didn't have enough wine. Uh-oh, we can't provide for the party. And so it looks bad on us. That's why Mary comes and says, hey, they're out of wine. And Jesus is like, what's that to mean to you? Mary runs off and says, do what he says to do. And he changes the water into wine. Because these were long, drawn-out deals. And it was the job of the, of the groom's family to make it a big deal. So running out of wine was kind of a social faux pas there. These wedding feasts were major deals. And here in the parable, it's a king who's giving a wedding feast for his son. So that's an even bigger deal. If the peasants partied hard at weddings, what do you think the monarchs did? And imagine being on the guest list of this wedding feast. You reckon you'd clear your calendar for that? The king has invited you to a wedding feast for his son. Uh, back when 
uh, the last royal wedding that we had. I guess, let's see, in my lifetime, I can remember Charles and Diana. That was a big deal, right? And then um, Kate and, what's the dude's name? Harry, no, Harry, Harry's the brother, Harry and Meghan. Anyway, I can remember three royal weddings in my lifetime. And they're big deals, and women wear those stupid-looking hats that I don't understand at all. But anyway, if you'd have got an invitation in the mail for that wedding, you'd have cleared your calendar. Because it's a big deal. You're like, I'm being invited to the royal wedding? Wow. Okay? So these people, this king is giving this wedding feast for these people. And imagine being on that list. It would be a clear honor. You would be stoked out of your mind to be on that list and to get that invitation. This is A-list stuff. Probably at least a week, maybe more of feasts and parties and wine and food and all the creature comforts you could imagine to celebrate the king's son getting married. It would be a clear your calendar kind of deal because the honor and the prestige of being at the king's son's wedding would put you in the presence of the social elite. And it was sure to be a pretty rollicking week or two of food, wine, and who knows what else. You'd be pampered to say the least. A-list type stuff. To get that invitation would be an amazing shot in the arm for your social life and your self-esteem. Whoa, I'm going to the king's palace to celebrate his son's wedding. Anybody ever been to a royal wedding? We live in West Virginia, y'all, right? We serve him little cocktail weenies at our weddings, right? We don't do king's weddings here. We don't know what this is all about, but it was a big, 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 big deal. And whoever the king invited would obviously make attending a priority, right? Well, verse 3 says, The king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Now what? The king is throwing a wedding feast days and days, maybe weeks long. He sends out invitations prior to let people know, you know, hey, I want you to be there. And it would be one of the highest honors and best times that you can imagine. And when the time comes and the king sends servants to call people to the feast that is ready, I don't reckon I'm going. The servants show up to the various places where the invitations had been distributed and everybody says, nah, I'm not coming. I got better things to do. How do you think the king responds to that? Well, first, again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. So he sends another round of servants. This time with them explaining, hey, it's not time to get ready for the feast. The feast is ready. The dinner is prepared. The oxen and the fattened calves are slaughtered. The food's on the table. Everything's ready. It's all ready. Come to the wedding feast. It's go time. Let's go party. It's all waiting for you. All this work has been done to honor my son and to bless you all in the process. And it's time to do it. It's time to attend the feast. And there's more of a commanding tone here. Maybe that's the goad that they need to motivate them. Maybe they didn't quite understand. Maybe they thought he was saying, well, we're getting ready, so be ready. Here he's saying, no, it's ready. Come on. Maybe that'll motivate them. 
Maybe not. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now what? These, these two verses are just awful. Terrible. Now remember who is talking and who he's addressing and why he's addressing them. Jesus is telling a parable to explain the kingdom of heaven, yes. But he's really leveling hard truths about the failure of the religious Jews to truly know that kingdom that they say they're a part of. He's telling them how they've responded to God over the years as religious and political Israel. They are the ones who are not responding to the king's invitation to his son's wedding. They are the ones who will miss the king, they'll miss his son, and they'll miss the kingdom that the king and his son are over. And how have they responded to the king's invitation? Well, they didn't come first, the first time, and now here... It says they paid no attention. They paid no attention. Now just let that sink in for a second. That phrase, paid no attention, is a Greek word that means they did not show concern for or interest in. The king is honoring his son with a wedding feast and these people just didn't care. They didn't care about the king. They didn't care about his son. They didn't care about the feast that he was giving. They didn't care and they paid no attention to the call to response to the invitation. And it says they went off. One to his farm, another to his business. They just went about their everyday mundane lives with no regard to this amazing feast they had been bidden to. Nah, I'd rather go to work. I'd rather spend the day at the office than come to your feast. I don't care about you, your son, your feast. Let him get married. It doesn't matter to me at all. Not just that. They didn't care, but it says that some, the ones that didn't go back to their everyday mundane lives, as if that wasn't bad enough, it says there were others who paid attention to the messengers but did so by seizing them, treating them shamefully, and killing them. And this is the same vein of thought as what we saw the last time when the vineyard owner sent servants uh, that were harmed and killed. And this is what the Jews had done historically and consistently to the messengers, the prophets, that God had sent them. And after that vineyard parable, the leaders realized that Jesus was talking about them and they were trying to figure out how to respond to him. But here in today's parable, Jesus doesn't give them a time to respond. Instead, he tells them how the king will respond to them and to their actions. Take a gander at verse 7. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. In the story, it would make sense that the king would be upset, right? He'd sent out invitations to these folks and then sent the summons to them to come. Sent the summons to them to come again when the festivities were at hand. They did not respond. And not only that, they also mistreated and killed his servants. And here we see that the king was angry. 
Now, how do people with absolute power respond when their subjects defy and dishonor them? We don't know what the anger of a king looks like in America. We don't grasp that. We, the people, don't understand somebody with absolute power. And this is absolute power. And we've lost our concept of respect as a culture too. When somebody who is in authority speaks to you, you respond and you obey. Well, uh, they're not always right. Oh, we've talked about this. I'm not going to go there. But we've lost our concept of... We don't respect anybody. We expect everybody to respect us, but we don't respect anybody, especially authority. That's not in the text, sorry. But we have lost our concept of respect. They have disrespected, these people have, they've disrespected their king and they've disrespected his son and he was angry. So it says that he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Now what? For not coming to a wedding? Yes. And for harassing and murdering his servants. But don't miss the severity of this response. The king uses his power and position to leverage the army and killed these people and burned their city. Now imagine the shock on these bums' faces who were just hanging out at their farms and their businesses or wiping their hands from their murderers when they see the troops start rolling up and the flames start. What is going on? What's happening? The wrath of the king is falling on you. That's what's happening. Because you've disrespected him and you've disobeyed him. Well, we just didn't go to the wedding. I mean, we killed a couple servants. What's the big deal? Regret is a pretty weak term in this context, I would say. I I would ask you, does this response from the king seem extreme to you? Well, again, this is the king and he and his son have been dishonored and his servants have been killed. He's not going to take that lightly. Now, as far as interpretation, what does this mean for the Jews? They've dishonored God. They've mistreated and killed his servants. And now they are in the process of rejecting his son. They're plotting how to kill his son. Right now is what they're doing. So Jesus is saying, this is what's going to happen to them. That's what it means. And that's exactly what happened in A.D. 70 when the Romans wiped out the Jews in Jerusalem led by General Titus. Josephus, the Jewish historian who saw this come to fruition, described it this way. Listen, quote, and it's a rather it's like a paragraph. This is Josephus explaining what happened when this took place in 70 A.D., which was 30, almost 40 years after Jesus said these things. That building, the temple at Jerusalem, however, God long ago had sentenced to the flames. But now, in the revolution of the time periods, the fateful day had arrived. The tenth of the month of Luz, the very day on which previously it had been burned by the king of Babylon, one of the soldiers, neither awaiting orders nor filled with horror of so dread an undertaking, but moved by some supernatural impulse, snatched a brand from the blazing timber and hoisted up by one of his fellow soldiers, flung the fiery missile through a golden window in the temple, he said. Continue quote, When the flame arose... 
A scream as poignant as the tragedy went up from the Jews now that the object which before they had guarded so closely was going to ruin. While the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, laity and priests alike were massacred. The emperor had ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed, R-A-Z-E-D, to the ground, except only the highest towers and that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the west. End of quote. And over a million Jews were massacred on that day. And that's why they still have the western wall there, the wailing wall, the weeping wall, that's still standing. It's the only part that was left out of this total destruction. And no future uprisings were ever an issue again. And the temple has never been rebuilt. Why? Because Rome's mean? Nope, not according to Jesus. Because they had failed to come when he called them to the wedding feast for his son. And because they had mistreated his servants. God punished them severely and definitively for their rejection and disrespect of him. And Jesus is telling them before it happens in this parable. And they don't have a clue what he's talking about. They just know he's talking about them. Well, what's that mean? The troops are going to come and set our city aflame. What's this crazy man from Nazareth talking about? And their disrespect just grows and their plot to kill him just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. It's awful. And in the estimation of the king and his son, it's completely deserved. Deserved. But what about the feast? Still a wedding feast, right? Back in the parable? Eight and nine. Then he, the king, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. So the king doesn't cancel the feast. The feast is still on. The son is still getting married. But who will come to celebrate with and for him? So the king sends more servants. He's got a lot of servants. He sends more servants to find some folks who will come. The king tells his servants that those who were invited were not worthy. I'd say they weren't. That's a pretty interesting word there, actually, worthy. It's the Greek word axios, A-X-I-O-S. They're not worthy, which means... The word axios means weighing, having weight, having the weight of another thing of like value, worth as much, befitting, congruous, corresponding to a thing of one who has merited anything worthy, both in a good and bad sense. And what I really want to point out from that uh, definition of worthy is that section that says befitting, congruous, corresponding to a thing. These people were not worthy. They weren't fit to come. They weren't congruous, which means they didn't match up. They weren't in agreement with the king. They weren't lined up with him and his purposes. So the king says, just go to the main roads where all the people are milling about and invite everybody you can find. Call them all. Tell them all to come. 
Come on, the feast, this feast is waiting. This feast that you had not previously been invited to, it's ready and I want you to come now. Come celebrate with me. Come honor my son. And so how does that go? Verse 10, quite differently. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This verse is loaded and packed. So those servants did what the king told them to do, which is what servants do, by the way. Servants don't make suggestions. And it says that they gathered all whom they found. No trying to find worthy people now. No seeking those who agree or disagree. Not looking for pedigree or high culture. No, it says both bad and good were found and brought. Amen. Praise God. Both bad and good were found and brought. Now can you imagine being these folks? (laughs) You're just out doing your daily thing. you got no expectations. Maybe not even able to find money or food for that day. Maybe you got nothing. Maybe you're a beggar. Maybe you're blind. Maybe you're lame. And the king's servants show up in the street and say, Hey, everybody! Come party with us. Huh? Come on. King's got a feast ready. The regular guest wouldn't come. He wants anybody who will to come now. Me? Yeah. Are you good or bad? Uh, uh, come on anyway. Doesn't matter. Okay, where are we going? To the king's palace. What are we doing? We're going to feast. We're going to party. We're going to honor his son. Okay. Hey, y'all come to the king's palace. He's got a feast planned to celebrate his son's marriage. It's all ready. Y'all come. And you, 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 everybody. Come on, let's empty the street. Let's go to the king's palace. Yay! Yay! All hail the king, right? Mission accomplished. The hall is full. The king's got to be tickled to death now, right? He's got a bunch of bums in his hall eating his food. And they're like, hey, king, what's up? We like this. You got any more sons? Be nice if you did. Well, verses 11 and 12. But, ah, there's that word. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Well, this was going really nicely, right? This was was nice. The good and the bad, everybody was there. They were invited, they're they're feasting. And again, they would have reclined at the table and they're feasting and they're eating. And, And the pinnacle of the festival was when the king showed up. Long live the king. Yeah, there's the king, everybody. Everybody The king give us his food party. We're part of, we love the king. King's good. Eh? And he shows up. Hey, everybody, everybody, everybody. And he stops in his tracks. And our verse 11 starts with that word. But. But when the king came in to look at the guests, the king wants to see this full room. He wants to get a beat on the folks that are there. And the fact that the word but leads the sentence, we can gather that this isn't going to take a turn for the better. So what causes this contrastive conjunction? 
what, what causes this change in tone and mood. Well, the king is checking out the folks who've been herded into this feast, and he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Blame it all on my roots. I showed up in boots and ruined your black tie affair. It's that kind of moment, right? What would happen in those times is at a wedding, people wore white garments to the wedding. And everybody knew you wear white garments to the wedding. And if you don't have a white garment, you don't come or you go get one however you need to get one. It doesn't say in the parable, a lot of times people would provide the garments for the people to come to the wedding. And we don't know if that's what happened. But everybody in the hall has got a wedding garment on except this one guy. There's always that one guy, right? Always somebody wearing shorts in the midst of the congregation. (sighs) Those wedding garments weren't worn anywhere else. They were only worn at those special times to celebrate those special occasions. And this one guy doesn't have one. Everybody else does. And I'm sure he stuck out like a sore thumb. And the but at the beginning is a pretty obvious sign of how big a deal this was. The king comes in and his eyes are drawn to this oddball, this misfit. And the king comes directly up to him. And he says, friend? That's shocking. How did you get in here without a wedding garment? He just can't wrap his mind. How how did you even get in this hall wearing what you're wearing? How did, you, how, did, how did you get in here without having a wedding garment on? Which implies it shouldn't ought to happen. The king struggles with how this could even happen. I mean, look around. Everyone else, literally everyone else, is wearing their wedding garments. And it's common knowledge that you don't go to a wedding if you're not in your wedding garment. It just doesn't happen. So how? How did you even get in here without that garment? And how does the guy respond? Speechless. There's not even a, uh, well, uh, uh, well, uh, uh, there's nothing. He's speechless. He's got nothing. Just silence. He has nothing to reply at all to the king. No justification, no explanation, no reasoning, just silence. So how do you think that works out for him? Well, you know, because we've already read it. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay then. (laughs) Obviously this is not a light nor laughing matter. The king calls on the attendants and has this fellow thrown out. Actually, not just thrown out. Bound hand and foot and cast into the outer darkness. This is a reference to the worst place possible. Out of the room where the joy and mirth and food was, where the king himself was, into a dark place somewhere outside, bound hand and foot, where this guy will weep and gnash his teeth, along with the others who were in that same dark place. We call it hell. And Jesus is telling this story and making it clear that this was no mere oversight to not have this wedding garment on. 
This wasn't just an oopsie, it slipped my mind. It was a command that was disobeyed. He should not have been in there without the wedding garment. It's an act of outright rebellion. This man had been called graciously on no merit of his own off the streets that day to come into the presence of the king to celebrate the wedding of the king's son. He was feasting on food that was not his own. He was receiving the gift of the wealth of the king himself and he did not comply with the only requirement there was to be in there. His silence seems to imply that he could have, that he had the chance to, the means to, even if it was furnished for him. But he just didn't do it. The one thing required was not complied with. So, instead of grace and reward, he gets condemnation and punishment, just like the people who didn't come the first time they were invited. Same punishment. But why? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. (laughs) For, Jesus says, to conclude this two-faceted parable, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, I don't know about you, but at first glance, this doesn't seem to put a period at the end of this sentence. Not for me feels more like a question mark. For what? For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, hmm. Okay. The Jews are killed and their city is burned and this guy gets sent to hell because he didn't wear the right clothes to a wedding. For many are called, but few are chosen. <laughs> huh? Anybody else fl- a little bit thrown by this flow? Just me? Okay. (laughs) So Jesus obviously knows what he's doing. Okay? So let's see if we can pick up what he's laying down here. In communicating a parable to describe the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is giving two examples of the kinds of people who will not be in the kingdom when all is said and done. The first group is the religious and national Jews who persecuted the messengers of God and didn't celebrate God's Son when they were invited to. Okay, that's pretty clear, pretty simple. That's the first part of the parable. And then God sends messengers to call everyone to celebrate His Son, both good and bad. Well, what's that inferring? Well, that's as the gospel call went out, Jesus said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel, preach it to every creature. Tell everybody who will to come. Okay, so that's the second part, right? Again, pretty clear and simple. God sends messengers to call everyone to celebrate His Son, both good and bad. And they all come, but one of them doesn't meet the single requirement to be in that kingdom. And His fate is the same as the Jews who got punished. Why? For many are called, but few are chosen. Jesus, and please get a hold of this. Please help me to get a hold of this too. Jesus is putting all the ultimate authority in who will be in the kingdom of heaven in whose court? In His court. 
Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the religious or the pagan, not the good or the bad. God is sovereign in every single fraction of an inch of His kingdom, including salvation. And God's sovereignty in salvation started way before John Calvin, way before Augustine, back to the mouth of Jesus Himself. And even before that, when we see in the Scripture that God declares that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. Jesus, here at the end of this parable, disqualifies everyone from the ability to choose their being saved or not. Many are called. The Jews were called. The good and the bad in the streets were called, but few were chosen. And who chooses the chosen? Only God can. For Jesus to say this in the presence of the pharisaical sect of Jews is Him clearly showing their lack of new life, their lack of salvation, their lack of being chosen. And it shows them that He is the ultimate determiner of who is in the kingdom and who is not. Jesus, the Christ of God, the Son of God, will be celebrated. He will be glorified in and he will be glorified over. He will see to that. And there is not a man, woman, child, or devil who will keep that from happening. Try as they may. Four. Many are called. But few are chosen. Man, that, that just kicks us in the gut. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. No. <laughs> Just stop it. Stop your mouth from stammering. Stop your mouth from stuttering. Stop your mouth from trying to justify yourself before God because you can't do it. Well, that's not fair. Stop it. Four, many are called, but few are chosen. Period. So how do we apply this? We've reached the end of our passage today. We are to be those who come when the king commands. And when we come, we are to clothe ourselves in the garment that he has prepared. So we're going to look at three C's. Command, convenience, and clothing. Pretty simple to figure out where this is going, I hope. First is command, and we're looking at application now. How do we apply? How do we live in light of what we've just read and studied? Listen to me. Listen to the Scriptures. Forget, forget that I just said that about me. Listen to the Scripture. Salvation is a command. The king sent out his invitation to the people that he chose to send it out to. And when they didn't come at his command, what did he do? He tried again. Hey, it's ready. Come. They said no. They mistreated his servants. And then what did he do? He wiped them off the face of the earth. Why? 
because they disobeyed His command to come. Oh, we lob it out there. Oh, God would be so happy if you would just come to Him. God would be so happy if you would just honor Him with your presence. Will you please just accept Jesus? That's not the biblical structure for salvation. Salvation is a command. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled. If you want, please come to me. I'll bless you. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent! And believe the gospel. That's a command. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance got overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. When we stand before the judgment seat of God, and we all will... Individually. God will judge whether you repented and believed, repented and followed, repented and obeyed Him or not. Period. Not if you had a nice feeling one time in a church service. Not if your emotions lined up with the Scripture that day. Not if you signed a card, put your name on the roll. We've been through this a thousand times. You know what I'm going to say. You are going to be judged by whether you obeyed the commandment to repent or not. Because he's the king. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem nice at all. He is the king. And we are servants in His kingdom. And if you don't obey the king, you get the wrath of the king. We need to be begging people to repent. We need to be begging people to flee from the wrath to come. Not offering them some behavior modification or some good feelings if they would just come and let Jesus be their personal savior. Like Don was talking about. Repent. Change the way you think. Change what you do. Because that's the command of the king. And if you're sitting here this morning, or if you're watching over the internet, however you're watching, if you haven't repented, you're not obeying the commandment of the king and you're going to be judged eternally for that. You say, are you trying to scare me? Absolutely I'm trying to scare you. I don't want an emotional response, but I'm trying to get you to see the truth, and the truth is frightening. The wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, whom we all have been in the past. Salvation is a command. God is sovereign in all things at all times over all peoples, from Adam until the last person draws their breath.
and his command to them all is to repent. You say, well, these people in the story today, they had an invitation and they they didn't have to respond to it. (laughs) No, they didn't have to respond to it. And they didn't. And the judgment of the king fell upon them. Rightly so. Command. That leads us to convenience. God is not a king. God is not a sovereign who can be conveniently obeyed when we feel like it. Or when we want to. We can't take his word and mix and match it and cut it up and pick the pieces out that we like and obey them. But shake our heads at the things that we don't like and say, nah, I don't think, I'm gonna, I don't think that applies to me. I don't think it applies to our time anymore. God will not, cannot be obeyed out of your convenience. When you feel like it. When you get scared, when you get a bad diagnosis, when things get tough, man, we're quick to go to God then, aren't we? God's to be obeyed all the time. God is to be obeyed when things are good, when things are bad, when it's raining, when it's sunshiny. When the sun's shining down on me on the road marked with suffering, I am to have in my mind the desires and the commands of God first and foremost. Not my pleasure, not my convenience. And here's the deal. I think, from from looking at this passage today, the day-to-day is a tremendous thief of our attention and obedience to God. Just the day-to-day. Just another day. How you doing today? I'm all right. Just another Monday, just another Wednesday, just another Friday, just another Saturday, just another, just another, just another, just another. And that's where we lose sight of God and His commands. Because we're just existing. In our passage today, the originally invited folk paid no attention to the king's command to come, going instead where? To their farms, to their businesses. Which was contrary to the command of the king. We have been commanded to go to our farms and to our businesses and to our homes. My question is, are we obeying God in those places, in those times, all the time? Not just when it's convenient for us. It's not the fantastic that robs our affection for God. It's the mundane. We just forget Him. We don't need His help. I can do the day-to-day. I can get up and go to work and come home and eat my dinner and go to bed. I can, I can do that. And I'll pick when it's convenient for me to serve God. That's not allowed in the kingdom. That's not how Christians live. But we've seen it. We saw it in the Jews. We saw it way back in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the everyday and the mundane that makes us forget God. 
especially when things are all right. That's when we forget his commands. Now, how does God respond to that? Look at Hosea. This is, woo. Hosea 13, 5 through 8. It was I who knew you, God says to the Israelites, in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. Now watch this. So I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. Holy cow. What? That's God speaking about those who call themselves His people. Now listen, Romans 8.1, praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am not telling you guys today, if you are a believer, I am in no way saying that if you forget God, He's going to lurk beside you like a lion and He's going to rip your breast open He's going to kill you. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, when we forget God, it is not pleasing to God. It is disrespecting God. It is forgetting Him and saying... What's right here is way more important to me than God is. And again, he has fulfilled his wrath against our forgetfulness, against our sins, in the person of Christ on the cross. So there is no condemnation. But guys, what if we just didn't forget him? What if we focused our lives on obeying his commandments when things are bad, when things are good? And let's make it a point. To not forget him. You say, well, I've never really forgotten God. I've went on my merry way many times, not thinking about God at all. And we shouldn't. We are his servants. He is not our servant. And I think that's how we live so often. God will not be one who is at your beck and call. He will not be relegated to a category of convenience in your life. We are to obey His commands, not to try to command Him and tell Him how He should run our lives or how we will run our lives. We saw this in our last passage, uh, last time we met together two weeks ago. This was in the application, but it bears repeating. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. We need to live like people who have been bought with a price. The flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ himself. That makes you incredibly valuable to God. You're like, yay me. No, yay God. I need to live as one who has been purchased. One who has been bought with an extremely great price. So glorify God in your body. So this is not about... It's not about obeying God out of convenience or at our leisure. The direct command of God is to obey Him and His commands. So how do we comply? Clothing. What does the wedding garment in the parable represent? Oh, there's a battle among theologians. 
Oh, the commentators, man, are just all over the board. And I love what R.C. Sproul, I think it was Sproul, yeah, he said, Boyce, James Montgomery Boyce said in his commentary on this passage, the wedding garment is the righteousness of Christ, of course. We talked Wednesday about some passages, we don't know if we can really interpret them, we don't know if we can really figure out what they really mean, revelation and all this stuff, how do we figure all this out? We have one command. Repent, and in that repentance, we put on the righteousness of Christ. We put on the wedding garment that God has provided for us. I wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. We obey the command of God, not at our convenience, but we put on the clothing, the wedding garment that He has given, provided for us, and that is the very righteousness of Christ. Listen to me. I don't care who you are, where you've been, if you've been saved since you were in the womb. I don't know. If you have not placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, if you have not clung to His righteousness as the means to save you, you are not saved. Only the alien, foreign righteousness of Christ is able to save sinful men. Nothing else. No one else. And if you're trying another way, it is a dead end and you will end up in hell for eternity. The king will show up at the wedding feast and you don't have the garment on and you will be bound hand and foot and thrown into the, out of dark, into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because you trusted in your own righteousness. You trusted in your own garment. You trusted in your own deeds. And the king says that is not acceptable in any way, shape or form. How did you get in here without a wedding garment on Bind him, hand and foot, out of here. Why? Because there's only one way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. What does that look like? We'll finish with this. I've got one, two. I've got three passages. Then we'll be done. Colossians 3, 12 through 16. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns with spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you look back at the beginning, put on then these things. Well, how do we put on those things? Romans 13. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify 
its desires. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And when we put on Christ, listen, it changes our lives. And we we become obedient slaves. Not perfectly obedient, but obedient because we've put on Christ. In the last time, at the end of Revelation, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So you're like, oh, i got to do good deeds then. It's not what this is saying. Our deeds are the garment, and that garment is the gift of grace as we have been given the very righteousness and power of the living Christ. No one gets into this marriage celebration without first having put on Christ and then, after having put on Christ, doing the deeds that only He can do in and through us. And who's going to make it? Those who were chosen. What do you do to get chosen? You don't. So I've got to put on the garment. Yes, you do. I've got to do righteous deeds. Yes, you do. How do I do that? You're chosen by God and by the gift of His grace and love, He gives you the very righteousness of Christ. And calls you to himself. You are born again. And then you exhibit the faith that has been given to you as a gift. And you glorify God with your life. As you live that faith out. And do the things that he has commanded you you to do. Not at your convenience. But because of his gloriousness. Because of his graciousness. Because of his sovereignty. And you wear that clothing proudly. I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ and I am doing the deeds that only He can do through me. So who gets the glory? The King and His Son. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words. And I pray that we would receive them soberly. And that we would respond in the power of your spirit to do what you've called us to do. To obey you. You are the king. We have made you too small in our eyes. Oh Lord, forgive us. And God, there are those who sit and hear these words and they are in active rebellion against you. Give them new life. Give them the gift of faith. Bless them. Raise them from the dead. And may they obey your command, not at their convenience, but may they clothe themselves with the righteousness of Christ. Seek shelter in the person of Christ and do the deeds that only he can do in and through them for the rest of their lives. Thank you for your grace. Help us to live in it and as a result of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him. Now to Him.
who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To Him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed if you can. I don't think it's raining anymore. If you want to congregate, please do that out there. Don't bunch up in here and give the appearance of spreading something.